Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be doing the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon. Yes. Can you just hear the cheers coming all over the world? What a great week. I love Isaiah. We got got to start off by saying, I think we got to acknowledge, Bryce, that uh, a lot of people don't like Isaiah, and I think Isaiah gets a bad rap, and I think that's okay, right? Yeah. It's supposed to be difficult. You know the old story that the missionary gets shot by some ruffian in the back alley, and falls over and the guy thinks he's dead and then walks over to steal from his pockets and the missionary stands up and the guy's shocked. Like, how did you survive? I just shot you. How did you survive that? And he reaches in and pulls out his Book of Mormon and says, nothing gets through Isaiah. (laughs) So there you go. So it's okay to not like Isaiah, but I think that hopefully by the time people are done that they may say, you know what? Isaiah's not so bad. Well, not only that, but the reality is the reason we don't like Isaiah is because it's kind of symbolic. It's not the way we used to look at, or we're used to looking at the scriptures. And Nephi's going to say that. Nephi's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to prophesy after the manner of the Jews. I'm going to speak in plainness. And so from thence on, every prophet that follows Nephi speaks in plainness. And then we've got the Doctrine and Covenants written in plainness. And so we grow up with very plain scriptures. I think that's the reason why we don't like Isaiah, but let me just put a plug out there. In the Lord's most sacred and holy places, he speaks the language of symbolism. And so it really does behoove us to learn how to learn from symbols and symbolic writing like Isaiah's. If we can master Isaiah, then we can walk into the house of the Lord and get a whole lot more out of the symbolic language in the temple. So tackle Isaiah, learn to get more out of Isaiah. And that's what we're going to do today is we're going to give you some helps on how to get more out of Isaiah. Probably my favorite verse, and we've done this before in the other podcast, Bryce, is uh, the verse in 3 Nephi where the Lord says, I think it's 3 Nephi 23, 1 through 3, where he says, everything that Isaiah said has been and shall be. I think when we read Isaiah, it's just not one thing. It's a multiple layers. And I think that's a really good approach. I also like to say this, if you're in doubt and you're confused, I think a lot of times the answer is Jesus. Yeah. You'll, you'll see Jesus in there if you kind of look hard enough. Because I remind you, back in 1 Nephi 19, Nephi's going to say to his brothers, you know, he's going to say that when I really wanted to help my brothers understand the Messiah, I read to them the words of Isaiah. And he's really trying to help us understand. In chapter 11, Nephi's going to say, I love proving to my people the coming of the Messiah. I love to prove the goodness of Jesus. And I'm going to quote Isaiah. Oh, yeah. And I love verse 4 of chapter 11, where he says, all things are a typifying of him. And so, worst case scenario, just assume Isaiah is talking about a Savior, and you'll, you'll be able to get some more meaning out of it. But what I'd like to start everyone off with is there are, if you look at the Isaiah chapters in Nephi, so way back in 1 Nephi chapter 20 and 21, and then we've got Jacob, or Jacob quoting Isaiah in 2 Nephi 6, 7, and 8, and then Nephi gives us a big humongous chunk of Isaiah in, in 2 Nephi 12 through 24. So if you look at the chapters that come right before and right after you'll find some wonderful little tips from the people who understood Isaiah the best on how to get more out of Isaiah. 
So let's do one. And I want to point out that every single time Nephi or Jacob quote Isaiah, they throw one word in. So if you'll go back to 1 Nephi chapter 19, just before, now he's about to, he's about to insert two chapters of Isaiah in 1 Nephi 20 and 21. But look at the last two verses of 19. He says, I did read many things which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Redeemer, I read Isaiah. For I did liken. There's our key word. I did liken. And you'll notice he repeats it in verse 24. He says, you can liken them unto yourself. So twice before he puts in two chapters in 1 Nephi. So now go to the next insertion. Go to 2 Nephi chapter 6. This is where Jacob's about to put two chapters of Isaiah in. And look at verse 5. In twice in the verse, he says, they may be likened unto you, for you are of the house of Israel. And there are many things which have been spoken by Isaiah which may be likened. So that's four times in two sections where we're about to quote Isaiah that they say you got to learn how to liken. And so then if you'll jump to chapter 11, which is right before the big chunk of Isaiah in 12 through 24, notice he does the same thing. Verse 2, for I will liken his words. And then again in verse 8, now these are the words and ye may liken them unto you and unto all men. So I would suggest the first thing we have to do with Isaiah's writings and all symbolic writings is begin to say, how is that like something in my life? Now, we've been trying to do that all along. That's what Mike and I try to do in these podcasts. Laman and Lemuel's rejection of Nephi is like our rejection of Jesus. Or we'll do a thousand of those. Crossing the sea is like mortality overcoming the great chaos. And so we've got to, as you go into Isaiah, you have to be able to say, this is like that. So let's practice. Let's, as we do each one of these suggestions, Mike, let's jump into Isaiah and find an opportunity that says, this is like that. So I'll go first, and then we'll have Mike go. If you'll go to chapter 15, it talks about a caretaker of a vineyard. And what do caretakers, what, do the, what does the Lord of the vineyard do to his vineyard? And so this one's an easy one. Jesus taking care of me in my life is like a vineyard master taking care of his vineyard. What people who own vineyards do to the grapes and the vines is what Jesus does to us. There's the likeness. And you now have to put yourself in it. I am a growing grape on the vine, and what the vineyard owner does to the vine, Jesus does to my life. So look at verse 2, 2 Nephi chapter 15, verse 2. He does five things. Number one, he fences it. Number two, he gathers out the stones. Number three, he plants it with the choicest vine. Number four, he builds a tower, and then he put a wine press therein. Now, if you'll just ponder and say, how are all of those like what Jesus does in my life? Well, he puts a fence around. Now, why would a vineyard owner put a fence around the vine? Got to keep out the bad stuff. Now, the funny thing is, the grapes have a tendency to think that the purpose of the fence is to prevent it from having fun. 
And Latter-day Saints and religious people all over the world often think that God's commandments are there to restrict me, to prevent me. In other words, the fence is to keep me in. But the reality is the fence is to keep all the bad guys out. Heavenly Father gives us a fence to keep the bad guys out. But if you resist it, notice if you read the rest of chapter 15, if you don't like the fence, he'll tear it down and then you'll be trodden over and you'll be destroyed. But we need to learn to appreciate the fence. Sometimes Isaiah even tells you what he's doing. Like yeah. If you look at verse seven, he says, the vineyard is the house of Israel. And I like how you take it, Bryce, and you say, okay, it's the house of Israel, but let's make it more personal. Let's make it about my life. Yeah, and because I am a member of the house of right. Israel. So going back to verse two, first he fences it. Second, he gathers out the stones thereof. There is not a stone in the vineyard now, that doesn't mean there aren't stones strategically placed somewhere else, but as far as the vine goes, he has removed the stones, which I would suggest is like my life. No trial that I go through is an unnecessary stone. God has removed the stones. But notice what he hasn't taken out of the vineyard, the wine press. So, None of the experiences I go through are a stone that blocks my progress or gets in my way. God won't let me deal with stones. He won't allow a stone to interfere with my growth. But that doesn't mean that everything's hunky-dory for the grape, because I'm not trying to become a raisin here. I'm trying to become wine, and that means someday I have to face the wine press. And no matter what, I just, I just know that the wine press is coming. And so I can rest assured that none of the painful experiences in my life are stones. God doesn't give stones. I can rest assured that it's part of the wine press experience that's going to turn me into what I want to become. Now, do you see what we're doing with this? I am like this vineyard, and Jesus is like the vineyard master who puts a wine press in the middle of it, but removes the stones. He, you may want to just mention the other three, he plants it with the, the best of the, the choicest vine. In other words, he, he surrounds me with the best people I could possibly surround myself with, and he builds a tower. Now, why would you build a tower in a vineyard? so that someone can climb up there and see a great distance off and give me a warning that danger's coming. Well, clearly, who's the man on the tower? I have a prophet. And so right there in one verse, you can kind of just all of a sudden liken how God treats us to a vineyard master taking care of a vineyard. And there's beautiful imagery there as you read the whole rest of the chapter. But you've got to take that initial liken and say, you know what? This is me. This is my life. This is what Jesus is doing in my life, like the vineyard owner is doing to his grapes. That's good, Bryce. I, I like that. That that is a great tool in how to read the text. And so in the rest of this chapter, you know, it talks about how they don't listen. They they struggle. In verse 10, it says that 10 acres of the vineyard yield. A bath and the seed of a homer yields an ephah. It means nothing to the modern reader, but and simply it just is saying that it's not fertile. Uh, there's, they're not producing. And why are they not producing? Verse 13, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. 
Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth. And so Isaiah talks about, well, why? You know, what's wrong here? What's happening? And we get a bunch of woes starting in verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, verse 20. And so to Isaiah, it's, you know, you've missed the point. I put all these things in your place and and you've missed it. And you've brought forth, verse 4, wild grapes. We're going to see some of this in Jacob 5. But I really like this, Bryce, where you say, okay, how does this apply to me personally? But the promise is always verse 26 of, of uh, the 15th chapter. He will lift an ensign to the nations. He'll hiss unto them. He's going to bring them. He's going to bring them forth. Now, Bryce, there's lots of ways to read 26 to the end of this chapter, and we can really get lost in the weeds here. But I just want to say big picture of Isaiah is he's talking to me, and he's going to bring me home. Yeah, and always liken it. And that's the thing. You've just likened it. This is what Isaiah is talking about is my journey back to Christ. But there's so many levels. And so we really could do like a seven hour podcast on these chapters. I mean, we really could. But big picture, I like that. you. I don't know how many times you said, but you said the word lichen was, I don't know, was that four or five times? Six times in between Nephi and Jacob. So it, it kind of matters. I mean, if it's six times in there, this isn't just like a one and done thing. And I also think this, Bryce, when Jesus says, uh, you know, he quotes Isaiah 54 in the third Nephi chapter, and then in the 23rd chapter of third Nephi, he, he commands him to read these things. And so I would say this to the listener, and I'm saying this to myself, I think one of the reasons why the Lord said this is because... You can't just read it one time. You can't just read Isaiah and be like, okay, I got it. Guy got it, Lord. I know what's going on. I, you know, I've been reading and studying Isaiah my whole life, and I'm still pulling new things, and I'm still learning new stuff with Isaiah. It's so good. And so I think another reason why the Lord said that is because he wants us to like slow down and chew it, like think about it. And it does tie all, you know, chapter 45 or 40 to the end of Isaiah talks all about the first temple. And so big picture, it's about God taking us home. And so with that, Bryce, let's do this. Why don't we do, um, should we do... You mentioned two helps right there. Mike's just comment, just mentioned two helps. Let let me throw two more helps in, and then we'll use that as to illustrate our helps. Um, So let me take you back to 2 Nephi chapter 11. So lichen is one help. Six times Jacob and Nephi say, before they quote Isaiah, you've got a lichen. But let me give you another help, ready? And Mike does this so intuitively that he doesn't even realize that it's a scriptural help. And so it's almost unfair the way he does this. But go to verse 8. Now, I need you all to not look at the scriptures for a second. But I want you to not look. Would you just close your eyes or look somewhere else as I read this, and I want you to fill in this blank. Ready? Fill in this blank, ready? Nephi says, and now I write some of the words of Isaiah. And whoso of my people shall blank these words. How do you fill in the blank? Most people would say things like... Maybe hear, maybe... Hear, study, read, read, ponder. Now go back and look. 2 Nephi 11, verse 8. He didn't use the word read or ponder or study He said, now I write some of the words of Isaiah, and whoso of my people shall see these words. That's a fascinating choice of words. You have to see Isaiah. And when Mike says that after a lifetime of studying Isaiah, he still sees new things, that's exactly what he means. I'm seeing this from a different perspective. 
It's not a matter of reading the words. It's a matter of pondering and seeing the vision, seeing the image. And then let me give you one more help. And again, this is why I love doing these podcasts with Mike, because he's such brilliant. He's brilliant at what I'm about to introduce. If you'll go to chapter 25, 2 Nephi 25, this is where Nephi says in verse 1 that Isaiah was hard for his people to understand, just like it's hard for Latter-day Saints to understand, because they don't know how the Jews prophesied. So you need to liken, but the, and you need to see. But I want to point out verse 5 and 6. Why is it that Nephi understood Isaiah so well? What advantage did Nephi have? Well, verse 5, My soul delighteth in the words of Isaiah, for I came out from Jerusalem, and mine eyes hath beheld the things of the Jews. And I know that the Jews do understand the things of the prophets. And there is none of the people that understand the things which were spoken unto the Jews like unto them save it be that they were taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. But behold, I, Nephi, have not taught my children after the manner of the Jews, but behold, I of myself have dwelt at Jerusalem. Now notice what he says next. Wherefore, I know concerning the regions round about. Meaning, if you want to understand Isaiah, you need to take a little bit of time and understand what he's talking about. When he talks about a teal tree, you need to understand what's a teal tree. When he talks about the cedars of Lebanon, you need to look up and figure out what are the cedars of Lebanon. Now, I'll be honest, this is one of the reasons you need to be listening to this podcast, because Mike Day is a brilliant source of saying, here is what he's talking about. Let me tell you the background. Let me tell you the context. But take that as an example for your own personal life. You'll understand Isaiah a whole lot more if you pause and dig a little bit into the tradition, the history, the imagery, what he's talking about. So when he talks about the destruction of Damascus, if you could do a little bit of a research, you don't need to be a scriptorian. You can find it in Bible Dictionary and a lot of helps. We've got wonderful resources available. But if you dig a little bit and figure out what happened at the fall of Damascus or any other description that Isaiah is giving us, if you'll do a little bit of digging and know concerning the regions round about, you'll get a little bit more out of Isaiah. Now, Mike's about to illustrate, and he could go on for hours, about if you just understand what this twist is, or here's a little insight into that um, tradition of the Jews, or in Isaiah's day, this meant that, then you'll pull out a whole lot more meaning out of Isaiah. So, Mike, illustrate that. How does knowing a little bit about the regions roundabout and seeing it, you've got to picture it. How do you see it? So you give us a couple of examples, and then I'd love to throw in an example of the beauty of seeing Isaiah in order to pull more meaning out of it. Good. Um, I will say this, Bryce. I like to talk about um, some of the history and some of these things, and then I'll come to Bryce and I'll say, hey, this is the story. This is politically what's going on. And then in 30 seconds, you'll be like, oh, that's like this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is like that. And so that's another reason why I like this podcast is you're getting a little, it's like a two flavors 
of ice cream. I'm, I'm an ice cream fan. So, okay, so big picture, a couple things. We're going to talk a little bit about politics on Isaiah's Day, but I promise I won't do so much that I bore you to tears. So, you know, everybody in America knows right now what's going on politically. And if you haven't been paying attention, you probably, or if you have, you know kind of what's going on right now in China with the virus. I can't even say the virus, but uh, it, there's stuff going on, right, politically and in the world. Well, in Isaiah's Day, there were things happening as well. So, I'll post this in the show notes, but I'm going to post a map of the political lines in Isaiah's day. And so essentially what you need to know is that the kingdom had split. Israel was split north and south. And so after it split, uh, they had war. There was a a lot of contention there. And the kingdom of Israel was teaming up with uh, the northern uh, areas. So for example, the kingdom of Damascus, they were teaming up against uh, the kingdom of Judah. And so because of that, Judah, the king, was thinking, well, should I allow, you know, should I ally myself with with other people? Should I uh, get into an alliance? And I don't know if the listener, if you guys have ever played the game Risk, but I play Risk with my kids sometimes, and we'll gang up on each other, and we'll, it's, it's a game of war. But essentially, in this situation, it's not a game. And so in this chapter, in the 17th and 18th chapter of 2 Nephi, or Isaiah 7 and 8, big picture, the Lord is telling the king, don't do that. Don't get involved into an alliance with any other tribe or any other group of people. Even though uh, Syria and Israel are going to come against you, um, just don't do that. And so the the language in chapter 7 of Isaiah or 2 Nephi uh, 17, I'm not going to read those verses. But essentially, in the first six verses, the Lord says, you know what, they're going to smoke out. These guys are going to flame out. They're not going to get you. But look at verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. This alliance of these two guys that want to blow you up are just not going to happen. And so in the 18th chapter of 2 Nephi, or Isaiah 8, there's two verses you want to highlight. Verse 9, associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. And verse 12, say ye not a confederacy to all to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Why? Verse 13, the Lord of hosts himself, let him be your fear. So the Lord is essentially saying, just trust me, I'm going to be with you. And so that big picture is the political message of those two chapters. And that would be something that you would be really afraid of if you're this little teeny country and you think, man, if I could just get another country to ally with me, then we'll be okay. And through the prophet, the Lord says, don't do that. And so as I was talking to Bryce about this, you know, we've talked about this before, Bryce, this has application in our lives. Like that's the them, there, then, you know, the political thing. And couched in the middle of this prophecy of don't ally, you get this really interesting prophecy that almost doesn't make any sense. And it's, to me, it's about Jesus, but it's about other things. So what do you do with this, Bryce? How do you apply it or how do you look at this stuff? Well, uh, let me give you an application. So what he's trying to say is, no matter how combined the enemy may appear, you trust the Lord, you align with him, you stick with him, and everything will work out. And, you know, we can talk about that politically, but we can also talk about a a middle school student who goes to school and feels completely alone and looks around and just sees so many people aligning and there's friends and they, and all I have to do to, to be accepted by those who use vulgar language is to use vulgar language. All I have to do be, to be accepted by those who smoke and drink is to smoke and drink. And that's the message of Isaiah. He's saying, look, if you align with them, it will fall apart. They will no longer, I mean, they, that is not true friendship. And in the end, they will leave you as quickly as they accept you. But if you will align with Jesus, 
if you will let him in your life, if you will trust that, you'll never fail. And so I think that's just so many applications in these chapters in terms of, look, Jesus came into this world miraculously, and he can come into your life miraculously. I like that. And if he comes into your life miraculously, then he will do miracles in your life because he is a man of miracles, a virgin conceived. Now, virgins don't usually conceive. And yet, when men can't explain him or how he helps, or they can't, they can't possibly give you an explanation for him, you just trust him. And if you let him into your life, all of these other alliances will just fall apart. But he will be ever with you, and he is the one to make an alliance with. I just so many ways yeah. to make application in those chapters. There's there's so much commentary on verse fourteen of Isaiah seven, and I'll just say this that uh, I think that to the people that Isaiah is talking to, what he's saying to them is a child's going to be born, and before this child can can eat solid food you know, we're going to be okay. I'm just going to read these verses. So he's talking to Ahaz, ask a sign, verse 11. Verse 12, Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. Verse 13, hear ye now, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, Ha'alma, shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest, those two kingdoms to the north, shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. A lot of people get hung up on that. This is a swarm attack. There's gonna be a massive attack. These two nations are going to go down. Was there a child born in that day? And in scholarship, a lot of people say, well, maybe this was Isaiah's child. I think there's multiple fulfillment here. I also think that in verse 14, there's the definite article before the word virgin. So this isn't a virgin, but it is the virgin shall conceive. And I think that's a little bit different. Um, and I know there's a lot of stuff in scholarship on, you know, what does this word mean? But to me, this is Isaiah, and he's clearly talking about all this stuff politically, but I really like what Rice is saying, where, hey, Jesus can come into my life. I can be threatened with all kinds of problems. There could be something in my job where I feel pressure, or if I'm a young person, like Bryce is talking about, like some of the pressures that they face, but even adults face these tremendous pressures, and um, Jesus can come into my life, and it can be miraculous. And I like that name, Emmanuel, which literally is God with us. God can be with us even when we're under attack. And so I think Bryce has done really good at illustrating like what in the heck's going on, how this applies. And in just a couple minutes, you know, we've tried to show you politically. And like I said, we'll post this map um, in the show notes and you can see it for yourself, just kind of what's going on. And if you think about it, a lot of people live in war-torn countries, don't they, Bryce, where yeah. there are all kinds of problems. And I think sometimes, even if you're not in a war-torn country, I think the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, even though we have all the protections we have in our country, the United States, I think socially we're under attack. And so I don't, I don't think this chapter isn't relevant. I think it has perpetual relevance, don't you? Yep. 
And before we leave the chapter, can I just come down to a very, very small level? Here's the power of Isaiah. Even though he's trying to give this message about being threatened by such a formidable host that you see and trusting Jesus, there is in verse 15 such a beautiful small lesson. And don't get caught up in the big lesson that you'd miss the, le- the small ones. He says, butter and honey shall he eat that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Do you know how you get your children to choose good? They don't need to taste evil and know that it tastes bad. They need to taste good. You don't know when food tastes bad by tasting bad food. You know when food tastes bad by tasting good food. And I think in that one little verse is such a beautiful lesson to parents that when your children taste the goodness of the gospel, the world will naturally just not taste good to them. You don't need to know, you don't need to taste evil to know that it's bad. You need to taste good to know that evil's bad. That's just an example of seeing and applying in one verse. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you're ready to sh- shift subjects, Mike, but before we do, can I take everyone back to chapter 16? This is a beautiful example of you've got to see Isaiah. You can't just read him. You've got to see him. So let me just, let me paint this picture and you see it. Ready? So in, in Isaiah, in 2 Nephi chapter 16 or Isaiah chapter 6, it's kind of the calling of Isaiah. He says in verse 1, I saw the Lord. Now, like any one of us, if we saw the Lord, how would you feel? Wouldn't you be very self-conscious about your own imperfections? And Isaiah is. He's very imperfect. So he says in verse 5, Woe is unto me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. So he uses his lips to symbolize his unworthiness to be in the presence of God. And that's a, that's a pretty decent symbol because my lips represent all the evil that comes out of me, the words that I speak. And so that is what Isaiah picks to represent his unworthiness. Now watch this absolutely beautiful scene. Isaiah feels unworthy. He's, he's seen the, la- the Savior, but he's a man of unclean lips. So now verse 6, you've got to see this. Ready? Then flew one of the seraphim, that's just a fancy word for an angel. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Okay, don't read that, see it. Why is there an altar in heaven? Why would there be an altar in heaven? There's an altar there because we've just offered a sacrifice. Now, why does the what does the angel need tongs? Because the coal is hot. So we have just barely offered an offering on an altar in heaven. What could we possibly be describing? Do you see it yet? We just laid Jesus, Jehovah, on an altar and sacrificed him. And the atonement is hot. And an angel picks up a little piece of the atonement with tongs because it's hot. And he flies to Isaiah. Now, where's the angel going to put the coal? Do you remember what Isaiah used to describe, to symbolize his unworthiness? His lips. 
And the angel takes the coal, which is hot, and lays it right on the lips of Isaiah and says, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Now, do you see the beauty of that? The angel picked up a little piece of the atonement and laid it on Isaiah and cleansed him. And the idea here is if you will just let any little piece of the atonement into your life, if you will let the atonement in, it will cleanse you. Lo, this hath touched your lips, and you are clean. Now, you're gonna, you can miss that so easily if you don't pause and read it. An angel coming with tongs and a hot coal, unless you pause and say, now, wait a minute, why would there be an altar in heaven and why would it be hot? This is the atonement of the, of the Savior. And anything that it touches is purified and cleansed from sin. Then the next beautiful scene is, as soon as Isaiah has been cleansed, this question is asked, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Now, clearly that's a reference to Jesus in the premortal life, who will be our Messiah. But it's also a plea to Isaiah. Okay, now that you've been cleansed, who will go and serve the Lord? Who will go to Mexico City and serve the Lord? Who will go to Ecuador? And notice how quickly Isaiah's hand shoots up and says, here am I, send me. And I can't help but connect those two. The best way to invite anyone to serve the Lord is when they are touched by the atonement. So if you're a parent out there and you've got a son or a daughter coming of missionary age and you'd love them to respond to the mission call like Isaiah responded here, here am I, send me, then the key is to get a little piece of the atonement into their life. Let them taste the atonement. And people will do things for Jesus they won't do for anyone else. And once they've been touched by the atonement and someone says, hey, will you go to Mexico City and serve a mission? You bet, here am I. And the hand shoots up as fast as it can because they've been touched by the atonement. But a young man or a young woman who's never been cleansed by the atonement, and then you say, "Will you? who will, who will go serve? Whom shall we send? There isn't that quick response like you get when you've been cleansed by the atonement. I just think that's such a beautiful yeah. moment there in Isaiah where he's cleansed by the atonement. It's beautiful. I would say this, Bryce, if I only had one chapter, if somebody said, you got to teach all of Isaiah and you have two minutes or three minutes, I have one chapter, I would read this chapter because it it does all of this. You know, where there's the temple in heaven and the temple on earth is a model of it. So if he's on earth or if he's in heaven, I don't care because he sees Christ. He sees the throne. And the smoke to me tells me he's right there before the veil. He's right there before the holy place and he can see the Lord. His sins purged in seven. The council language in verse eight is beautiful. Who will go for us? Clearly, Isaiah lives in a time period where they understand the gods. They get that there's divine beings. And then the question, how long? Verse 11, how long do I have to serve? And I love the Lord's answer. Well, till the cities are wasted and the houses are without man, and the land is desolate. For the Lord has removed men far away, for there shall be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Essentially, Isaiah, it's going to cost everything. 
You either go save everyone or keep preaching until no one, absolutely no one will listen to you. I love the verse, I think, is it Bryce in section 123, where it says we should waste and wear out our lives and proclaiming Jesus. And I just think that's beautiful. And, and I love verse 10, because this is what Isaiah is supposed to do. This is what all of us are supposed to do. Now, he kind of does it in a negative, but turn it into a positive. He says in verse 10, go make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their ears, lest they, in other words, if they would hear what you have to say, Isaiah, they will, ready? This is beautiful language, and you're going to find this theme all throughout the whole scriptures. This is the invitation from God. Hear, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, understand with your heart, be converted, and be healed. And that's exactly what the gospel is supposed to do. If you could just pinpoint one simple verse and says, this is what all of us as individuals are supposed to do. This is why the Savior came. This is why there is a gospel and a church yeah. of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's so we can help people see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, be converted, and be healed. It's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. The, the writer of Matthew 13 takes basically verse 10 and flips it and puts the onus on us, the listener. So this is Matthew 13, 13 says, Therefore speak I to them in parables, the Savior says, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, but shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And brothers and sisters, I just want to just share my like experience with this. I think this is a, a journey. I think this is something where careful reading takes time. And it's a blessing to have that time. And if you have it, you know, you're blessed. And it's okay if it doesn't all make sense at once. But I really do believe verse 10 is the gospel. And I really love verse 13. And it's kind of clunky, but here it is. This is um, verse 13 of 2 Nephi 16, Isaiah 6, 13, or 2 Nephi 16 says, But yet there shall be a tenth, and they shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. That is a very difficult verse, but big picture, what Isaiah is being told is that even though there's going to be rejection, even though... Um, these people are going to be decimated. The temple is going to be destroyed multiple times. The Jews are going to be scattered. Nephi's people are going to be destroyed. Many of you probably have children. If you're you know, old enough to have children and some of them have strayed, but the message is that they'll return even when it looks wasted. And we'll see this later when we see the rod and the root and the stem and all that stuff. But big picture, it's going to be okay. And so I, I like that. I like chapter six. Like I said, if we only had a couple minutes to do Isaiah, I would say this is a microcosm of everything that he's doing. Just a, a, a sacred moment, if I can just throw this one in. If you will enlist in helping Jesus and go try and do what Isaiah's doing and preach the gospel, you will be wounded. It's, you're going to take your licks. It's, it's a, it is a difficult work. It is going to be challenging. And if you do that, you will need healing. 
not just the people you're converting, but you will need healing. Jesus was wounded for me, and he has nail marks in his hands. And symbolically, as I work for Jesus, it's like getting nail marks in my hands. And someday, he's going to reach for me, and I'm going to grab his hand, and that will put those two nail marks together. His nail marks, where he was wounded for me, and my nail marks, where I was wounded for him. And he will pull me close to him and heal me. Everything we have to endure in the cause of truth, everything that we give up for him, he will heal. Every challenge that we face, going on a mission, giving up your family, eating strange food in a strange culture, whatever we do in his service, verse 10 applies to us because you hear with your, or you see with your eyes and you hear with your ears and you understand with your heart and you are converted, he will heal you. Everything that we suffer in the cause of righteousness and truth will be turned into a blessing and a healing when he pulls us close. And so it's, it's more than just they are healed. We are healed as well. I like that. Make it personal. Okay, so back to politics. So in 2 Nephi 20, and, and by the way, big picture, we're talking conflict, we're talking uh, kingship, and Isaiah's really into, well, who's the king? And it's going to be Jesus. It's going to be Jehovah. But in this chapter, chapter 20, they're under attack. And this did happen politically. So the chapters that you want to read, if, you, if you're reading to teach, I think it'd be good as a teacher to read Isaiah 36 and 37, as well as 2 Kings 18 and 19. That's the story behind this chapter. And essentially what it is... It's Hezekiah's stand, if you yeah. just want to put a title to those things. If yeah. you want to search it, there's so much great, wonderful things. It's Hezekiah's stand. Yeah. And essentially what happens is they're just surrounded. And a great uh, movie on this that isn't the movie of this story, but it's like a riff of this, is the, the two towers in The Lord of the Rings. In the books, it's called the Battle of Hornburg, but it's essentially where the enemies come, they're surrounding, and the walls, are the walls going to hold? Hezekiah is told by the public information officer of the Assyrians, he comes up on a ladder and he stands and he says, if you guys let us in, we're going to promise you'll live, but if you don't, if you make us lay siege to your walls around your city, we are going to wreck you. And politically, everybody was wrecked. And I he's mean, done that. They've yes. wrecked so many other people. They're on their way to Egypt. This is just a small little bug on the way to conquering Egypt. And look at all the people we've already conquered, and you're next. Yeah. And there's no way you're going to fare any better than they did. It's a massive taunt. I mean, in, in these verses, there's all these verses at the end of Second Nephi 20 where they're just like, we have just wrecked these guys. And, and Hezekiah doesn't know what to do. He's the king. And so he goes to Isaiah, what should I do? And Isaiah prays and the Lord says, you know what? Uh, we are going to be okay. Be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for a little while and the indignation shall cease. That's uh, 2 Nephi 20, verse 24 and 25. So it's going to be okay. Um, historically, there's this uh, document called Senna Cherub's Prism um, in 
I'll post that in the show notes. But essentially, the story from the Bible is that the Assyrians get wrecked. They wake up the next morning and they're dead. The armies are dead. Sennacherib goes back to his capital city and his own sons kill him. And all this is recorded in 2 Kings. And the author of 2 Kings says it's because they listened to the prophet and they listened to Hezekiah. And clearly, I mean, I can imagine the fear that Hezekiah must have felt when he heard the public information officer of the Assyrians say, hey, let us in and we'll let you live. It really reminds me historically, I'm going to geek out on World War II a little bit, where Adolf Hitler said, hey, to Winston Churchill, if you let uh, our Air Air Force land, um, we promise you guys you're going to be okay. I'll just let the Luftwaffe, I hope I said that right, land in in, uh, Great Britain and it'll be okay. And there's a beautiful speech by Winston Churchill and I can never remember it, but he says essentially, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them in the water, we'll fight them behind churches. And it's a beautiful speech by Winston Churchill where he's like, no, you're not coming here. If we're the last free people on earth to the last British guy is standing, we are not going to let the Nazis win. And I just love that. And I love it as a, as a type, Bryce. What do you do with this as a type when you teach you about this? How do you apply it? Well, not only just in Isaiah, but even in Second Kings, Hezekiah goes into the temple and he lays the letter on the altar. And he basically says, Lord, he can do everything he just threatened. He can do all those things. But if you're with me, we can stand. And I just, I think the application here is the world is coming at you and the world is overwhelming and they can do everything that they threatened. But with the Lord's help, we can take a stand. Stand for right, stand for truth, stand for virtue. Back in Revelation, we saw that the beast wants to put a mark in your forehead. And if you don't play their game, if you don't play, if you don't have the mark in your forehead, you can't play in their playground. And we live in this society that just does that. If you don't play the world's game, if you don't put the mark in your forehead, you can't play in their sandbox. And so it's so tempting to just give in and do what the world does. And the Lord says, don't. And the whole idea here is take a stand, stand for what's right. And just, I won't, I won't. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're meaner, they're more powerful. I'm outnumbered, but I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to take a stand for what's right. It's the young person who says, I will not use foul language, even though everyone else is doing so. And they mock me for not doing so. I will not drink and smoke. I will not give up the standards of the church in spite of so many people who want to destroy me. And they can. Socially, they can. But Lord, with you, if you're going to help me, I can take a stand. And, and he always wins. There may be battles. We may lose a few things. But when you stand with Jesus, you're always going to win. Yeah. There's a few really cool passages in the Book of Mormon, because I think that the authors use this to give them strength. So I'm going to throw a couple out there. Um, Jacob takes a stand. There's a couple times where Jacob says, hey, this isn't right, what's going on? So we'll do that when we get to Jacob 2. To me, the war chapters are interesting, chapters 43 through 62. There's just times... There's times when the Lord says, take a stand. There's other times when the Lord says, you know what? You guys need to go. It's time for you to leave. 
Nephi does it, right? There's just times when you when you leave and times when you go, and I think a big way we can know the difference is to listen to the Spirit. Yeah, and, the, the, and during the war chapters, the Lord will say to Captain Moroni that he will prosper you according to the circumstances you're in. So if, you're, if, if the Lord is with you, you'll know how to respond. Yeah. Sometimes you run, sometimes you take a stand. Yeah, and I love the, the chapters in there with the Gadiantons, the letter that they send where they say, hey, ally with us and we'll or, be allies. And they're like, nope, we're not going to yeah. do it. Third you know? Nephi 2, 3, 4. Yeah. Good stuff. And then finally, this isn't a Book of Mormon one, but I just love this. It's Joseph Smith History 125, um, where Joseph says about the vision, he's like, I knew it, and I knew I that knew God, that not, God knew it. And I could not deny it. Yep. So that's beautiful. And that's that idea is no matter how powerful the world may be, no matter how threatening they may appear, you stand with God. And you have more behind you than the threat in front of you. I just let me throw one more in there. One of my favorite scenes is in uh, the Old Testament with the prophet Elisha, and you know they're at war with Syria, and the Syrians are always saying Elisha is always telling them how to be prepared for war, and so the king of Syria concludes that he's got a mole. And they said, no, you don't have a mole. It's just that Israel has a prophet. So he sends his entire army to take out Elisha the prophet. Let's take out the prophet, and then we can win this war. And so he, the, Elisha's servant wakes up one day, and he's completely surrounded by the entire army. And he says, alas, my master, how shall we fare? I just picture this as a young man looking out at the army that opposes them. It's like, Lord, there's no way. What can we possibly do? And Elisha says to the young man, fear not, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I just love to, I, I just picture in my mind's eye, the servant looking at Elisha saying, one, two, you and me, and you're old, so you don't even count. And then he looks at the army saying, there's thousands out there. How can you possibly say that? And seeing the fear in his eyes, Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and he sees that the mountain was full of chariots of fire. And it's the same thing for you and I, brothers and sisters. If we could see the power standing behind us, we wouldn't be afraid of the forces in front of us. No matter how scary they may be, no matter how formidable it may be. Um, I was talking to a young man who's absolutely terrified to go on a mission. Um, anxiety, homesickness, lack of the ability to learn a language, all of those are the forces facing him. He just needs to understand the power that's behind him. And when he does that, when he takes a stand against fear, against anxiety, against homesickness, when he takes a stand with Jesus and says, Lord, if you'll be with me, I can win this battle. I can do it. And we can. We can. We can win the battle. Yeah. I think before we do stay true in captivity, I think we got to look at uh, Isaiah 11. Okay. And I'll, and I'll be brief, but I think this is just worth looking at. Um, for you at home, I would definitely want to look at section 113, of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is where Joseph asked the Lord, like, what's going on here? I really want to give a plug for what Bryce said about you got to see it. And so I'll post this, and it's a picture of a stump. And that's what the stem of Jesse is. There's this stump, and there's this little branch growing up out of the stump, and it's going to go grow into a tree. So I'm just going to read a couple of these verses. And we're talking about kingship, and we're talking about redemption. 
and we're talking about war. Verse 10 definitely is a, is a verse about war. But look at verse 1. They'll come forth a rod out of the branch of, of the stem of, or out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So wait, I thought we were talking about branches or roots or what what's going on? So verse 2, we're obviously talking about a person. So Joseph asked the question, what's going on here? So in verse 1 of section 113, he says, who's the stem of Jesse? And the answer, verse 2, is it's Christ. And so the image I want you to have in your mind is a stump. And the Lord says, yeah, that's Jesus. And, you know, how is Jesus like a tree that's been cut down? And I think it's a good thing to think about, well, it's he was killed. And so, well, what's going on here? And so in verse two, it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and shall make him quick of understanding. Well, what's going on in verse two and three and four, Joseph asks, he says, who is this person? Verse three of section 113, he says, well, what's this rod that's coming out of the, uh, of the stump. What is this? So the word is koter, and it's it basically that's the word used for rot rod, and it's a new tree. It's a branch coming out. It's a it's a shoot coming out of, of the stump. And the Lord says in verse four of section 113, he says, It's a servant in the hands of Christ, who's a descendant of Jesse as well as of Ephraim or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. So it's a servant. Um, brothers and sisters, I think a good type for this would be the prophet Joseph. Um, Joseph Smith as this servant. I think also typologically, this could fit anybody who says, here am I, send me. Anybody who will go and serve. And so what happens in verse 3, 4, and 5 of Isaiah 11 is we're going to make this servant quick of understanding, and the Lord's going to anoint them with his spirit. And notice how they're anointed with the spirit. It says, he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the equity of the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and the faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So this individual, whether it be Joseph, whether it be anyone who's made these covenants, will be blessed with the Spirit their eyes, their ears, their mouth, their lips, their loins, they will be, and by the way, that's kingly language. In First Temple Judaism, First Temple Israelite religion, the king was anointed that he would do these things, that he would reprove, and he would have judgment, and he would speak truth, and he would be chaste, and that his lips would do the things that kings do. And so this is millennial, clearly, it's kingly, but it's gathering. So if you look in verse 6, now we're shifting to millennium. Well, how does this happen? You don't have a millennial people, verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, if you don't have people like verse 2, 3, 4, and 5. Those are, to me, that's Exodus 19, 4, 5, and 6, where the Lord says, I want a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And to get them there, they've got to be anointed with the Spirit, and they've got to be like me. And so if they're like me, then we have this garden. We have this beautiful place. And so this is all happening in the first temple. And so Nephi gets this stuff. Nephi's seen this. Imagine if your whole life, you and your grandparents have seen this, uh, the temple drama, go back to the 34th podcast and listen to it. It's like 20 minutes. But if you've seen this, this stuff is not foreign to you. But I think we read it sometimes and it's just so foreign to our culture. 
Um, go to verse 10. There shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign to the people, and it to it the Gentiles shall seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Sheresh, the root. There's so many derivations of this word. Uh, it's about being tied in. Another word that's close to it is a word that means chain. We're linking ourselves back to God. And why do we need this? Why do we need this root? Verse 11, we're going to get gathered back. Verse 12, we're gonna, there's a banner. This, by the way, this is a, a battle with a king. The king's at the front, and we're going to set up the ensign to the nations, and we're going to gather the outcasts of Israel. Verse 15, we're going to destroy the tongue of the Egyptian. I don't read this literally. I don't believe we're going to war against Egypt, but Egypt is a symbol for the world, and we're being gathered. By what kind of people? Verse 2 through 5. People who've been anointed by the Spirit to introduce a millennial reign, that we're seeking after Jesus, and it's it's this war cry. And so big picture, that's kind of what I see happening in the 21st chapter. And I grew up in, uh, I spent many of my years in Northern California in, in a place called Eureka, and there were trees there that were redwoods. And I'm going to post a picture of it on, on the on the website within the show notes, but you can literally see these trees that are growing out of these stumps, these trees that have been cut down a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, some of them, and whole new trees growing up. And to me, I see that as Isaiah's trying to give a message of hope to these people. Like, I know you're going to get wrecked. I know you're going to lose the temple, but the Lord hasn't forgotten you. And Bryce, that's big picture. What I see the Book of Mormon is the Book of Mormon is like, I haven't forgotten you guys. It's very much second coming. It's very much Latter-day Saints. It's to give hope to the Latter-day Saints who are coming out of an apostate world and out of the apostasy to say, look, you are growing out of a dead tree. You are a branch that comes out of this dead tree, and you're going to get stronger and stronger, and pretty soon you will be the new tree that gathers everyone else. And so you Latter-day Saints, you hang in there. There is purpose. You've been sent to earth at this time to do something divine. We're coming out of the apostasy, and it's going to happen. We are growing. We are a new tree growing out of a dead one. It's beautiful. Very much Latter-day Saint imagery. I had a student who said to me one time, I just want to read the Book of Mormon and skip the Isaiah stuff. And as I've learned and grown in the gospel, I've come to, this is my view, brothers and sisters, of the Book of Mormon. To me, the Isaiah stuff is the Book of Mormon. Big picture, I think what the Book of Mormon's doing is it's taking Isaiah and it's repackaging it to these people that lived in the Americas. And it's come forth to us because every we live in this apostate time. It's just beautiful. The imagery is awesome. There's a reason Nephi's including it. He saw in his vision the latter days. He saw the struggles that we would have, the rebirth that we're trying to create, and he saw that these chapters of Isaiah would answer that question. So he's, there's a reason Nephi's throwing these in, is you've got to see the connection between Nephi's visions of what happened in the New Testament times, what happened in the Book of Mormon times, and what's going to happen in the latter days, and how Isaiah's message is tailor-made to those who are going through those very things. So, okay, before we get into the Stay True in Captivity, it's a super short chapter. It's 2 Nephi 22. In the, the fall festival, one of the days was the drawing of the water. And so there's this spring under Jerusalem called the Spring of Gahon, and the high priest would go down and he would get this vessel and 
get the water from the spring and carry it up to the temple in front of everybody. He would pour it to these two silver containers and he would pour it over the altar. You got to kind of see this in your mind's eye, brothers and sisters. And as the water trickled all over the altar and down, down, down into the ground, the vision was that God was going to make it rain. God was going to make things fertile. And the message was it was like this cycle. And the waters from the deep are coming here to the earth and they're going back. And the way I kind of see this is, um, I look at this as fertility, but I look at this as family. Like we come from somewhere and it matters. So anyway, if you look right there in verse three, middle of the verse of 2 Nephi 22, it says, with joy shall ye draw the water out of the wells of salvation. And then let's get back to Jesus. He is the the living water. Verse five, sing unto the Lord. So anyway, cry out and shout. This is all... uh, early temple stuff. So 23rd chapter. Um, this this chapter and the next chapter is, uh, Bryce and I think, I think a good term for this is stay true in captivity. They're going to be captive and the Jews are going to be in there for 70 years, captive to the greatest empire ever um, at that time, Babylon. Uh, incredible walls, lots of structures. They were like the big king of the ancient Near East. And essentially in these two chapters, Isaiah says, don't worry because um, I'm going to destroy her speedily. That's verse 22 of 2 Nephi 23. Um, Their houses will be filled with doleful creatures and owls. And then obviously I have to say this because I'm a dragon fan. Verse 22, the last verse in 2 Nephi 23, wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come. Her day shall not be prolonged for I will destroy her speedily. So the Lord says, I know they're big guys. It's okay. Like chaos is going to take over Babylon because Babylon is not my plan. And I love the imagery here is this is the world. The world is big. They are powerful. Just hang on. Um, and I, I know you're getting to chapter 24, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, Mike. And chapter 24 has what I think one of the most beautiful images of warning you'll ever find. Chapter 24 is kind of that same idea. Stay true in captivity because the Jews are going to go into Babylonia. They have to stay true in captivity. That's the overall big picture of in Isaiah's day. But Watch this beautiful scene take place. And so, verse 5, the Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepters of the ruler. So again, it's that message that Babylon is going to fall and you're going to go home, but it's also Babylon is evil and it's Satan. Verse 6, he who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. So we've shifted from an image of Babylon to an image of Lucifer himself. And I love that image in verse 6. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke. There comes a point in a fight that even the most hardened, cruel man will back away because the other person has had enough. But Satan never backs away. He will smite you with a continual stroke. Now, Watch what happens as we go into hell with Lucifer. This is an absolute beautiful scene that you have to picture. He who smote the earth with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations is persecuted and none hindereth. And we're going to send Satan to hell. 
We're going to send Lucifer to hell. Verse 7, the whole earth is at rest, is quiet, and they break forth into singing, right? As soon as we send Lucifer into hell, the whole earth breaks forth. But follow with me into hell. So let's go ahead of him, okay? Let's be before Satan shows up, let's, let's run into hell ahead of him. Verse 9, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up all the dead for thee. In other words, let's run around. Satan's coming, Satan's coming, Lucifer's coming. And everyone is just stirred up and angry. Now, why do they want to greet him? Is this Jesus coming into his kingdom? Is this a conquering hero coming back to the people who adore him? Is this the Kansas City Chiefs going back to Kansas City to their ticker tape parade? No. This is the prosecutor going to jail. This is the judge who sent them to jail all of a sudden being sent to jail himself. So the reason they're moved from beneath to meet him at his coming is they hate him. They're angry at him. They want to destroy him. This is the man that is the reason I'm here. And so they're just waking each other up. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Let's destroy him. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up all the dead, even the chief ones of the earth it has raised up from their thrones. And they all start speaking to each other. Now, they can't physically beat him up. So they're going to hurt him exactly in the way they know will hurt him. They're going to mock his pride. So they plan on it. As soon as he walks in, verse 10, they're going to say things like, Ha ha, art thou, be, art thou become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave. The noise of thy vials is not heard. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? They're going to mock him. You were the one that said you were going to be God, and here you are in hell. So they're planning all this on how, can you can feel their venom towards him, right? You can feel how much they hate him, and they want to destroy him. And then he walks into hell. And this is one of the most beautiful scenes we can perceive. Feel the venom that they have towards him. And then he walks in. Verse 16. You got to see this. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and shall consider thee and say, Him? Him? That's Lucifer? That's the guy I followed? That's the guy I fell for? Him? They will narrowly look upon thee. This man? And now all of a sudden, you feel their venom shifting. They're no longer angry at him. They're angry at themselves. You know what this reminds me of, Bryce? King Noah in the Book of Mormon. Yep. When they finally realize they've been duped by this guy, they, and he never had their best interest. They burn him. They it, burn him. But for the longest time, they think he's the they greatest thing ever. They cheered him. They, and that's exactly, it's a beautiful image. And here's, my, here, and here's another image. Do you remember when Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow, what they thought Oz was? This great, big, floating, powerful head. They were so terrified of him. They were willing to walk into the wicked witch's palace for him. And yet, what does he turn out to be? An old man behind a curtain. And you can almost feel their wrath when they realize that. They're angry at themselves for being duped. How could I have fallen for that? 
and they're angry at themselves. I can't believe I let such an insignificant nothing convince me to go into danger. Now, do you understand what Isaiah is trying to say in this context of Babylon, the great? He's trying to say that, you know what? All of Satan's temptations, all of them might appear to be this massive, powerful, floating head with fire and thunder, but the reality is they are an old man behind a curtain who has no power to get you back to Kansas. And what you thought the temptation was, what you thought evil was going to do in your life, it doesn't. It doesn't make you happy. It's the morning after syndrome. When you wake up and realize it was all a facade. What have I done? What have I done? It wasn't worth it. And so here, as the Jews prepare to go into Babylon, don't don't be deceived by the deception. It's not a big floating head. All of these temptations, immorality, all of these challenges that we face, money, fame, it's not a big, powerful floating head. It's simply an old man behind a curtain who cannot get you back to Kansas. Don't fall prey. I love that scene. As part of be faithful in captivity, you've got to see that. Don't fall prey for the deception. Yeah. Satan is not. Evil is not as great. It's not as powerful. It's not as rewarding as you think it is. But it's loud right now. It certainly is. And man, are they scary. And that big floating head with the fire that runs up. I, I'd be terrified and run into the wicked's palace if I didn't know what it really was, just an old man behind a curtain. I just love that scene. They will narrowly look upon Satan and say, is this the man? Are you kidding me? I can't believe I fell for that. Yeah, and he's going to take away uh, all their glory. If you look at verse 22, it says, I'll rise up against them, and I'm going to cut off from Babylon the name, the remnant, the son, the nephew, all of it, saith the Lord. This is a, a good package for this, too, is Isaiah 47 and Isaiah 52, 1 and 2, the great switch, the great exchange where Babylon in chapter 47 of Isaiah is kicked off the throne and she has to make bare the thigh and cover the lock and become a slave and Israel gets to come back onto the throne in Isaiah 52, 1 and 2. Um, this is the doctrine and covenants where the Lord says, I want to bring my people out of obscurity and out of darkness. And like Bryce says, it's loud right now. I can't even tell you how many times I'll go on a social media and it's like, man, is everybody against us? And so I look at it like, well, welcome to the club. This is, this is what it is. But the promise is verse 32, the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall trust in it. And so just hang on, keep going, stay true in captivity. Um, are the Jews in captivity? Well, yeah, they're in captivity for a long time until uh, you know they're 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 saved by Cyrus. What about the Nephites? Are they in captivity? Yeah, for a long time. You got Nephites and Gadian in captivity. Um, you've got uh, Mosiah twenty four, where uh, you know if you remember that story, where Alma and his people they're in total captivity and they cry out and God doesn't deliver them, and so they cry out in their hearts and they say, "Well, make us equal to the task, Lord." Everybody has captivities. I think, um, you know, I think sometimes of the financial difficulties that people have. 
or maybe they're in captivity with uh, other things. Maybe there's addictions. But whatever the captivity is that we have, the promise I think that Isaiah is trying to give us is that he's going to write this. It may not be immediately, but if we have trust in him, we'll see it. We'll see it in the end. I think these have perpetual relevance. This chapter, and by the way, I just got to say this about scholarship. There's a lot of scholarship out there that says, you know, a lot of the later stuff in Isaiah was written uh, later after the exile because Babylon wasn't a power. I've been reading a lot of this on the threads. Um, Isaiah is dealing with Babylon right here. These are the early chapters of Isaiah, which everybody's saying is the legitimate Isaiah, son of Amos, 740 BC wrote. And he's talking about Babylon. And he's talking about, I mean, this is chapter 14 of Isaiah, where he says, um, yeah, Babylon's going to go down. So however you want to read it, um, I think it's beautiful. And I think that Nephi, I really do think Nephi at this time, this probably comforted him as he's thinking, how are my people going to survive? We're in this new land and they, our kingdom's carved in half. And these guys want to kill us. And I'm going to trust God. I think, I think this is me. I think Nephi reads this stuff on the brass plates and he believes it. And he's like, we're going to be okay. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we've talked about some things that are like, okay, we've talked about the history, but what does it mean? And I hope that helps. Make sure you liken it. What is Babylon like? Uh, you know, the Jews went into Babylon. They were a, a formidable foe. They conquered the Jews. What is Babylon like? What is it like in your life? What is it like in the people you love? What is Babylon? Make sure you like in Isaiah. It may seem a little overwhelming until you just read it slowly. What is this situation like? And you've got to see it. You've got to picture it. You got to see those types of things. Yeah. And then if you spend a little bit of time and come to know the regions roundabout, what's the history? Read a little bit about Hezekiah's stand. What happened when Hezekiah took his stand? You'll get a lot out of these chapters. Now, let me just end with two more helps. So some of the helps we've given you is see it, liken it, know concerning the regions roundabout. If you'll go back to chapter 25, when we come out of these chapters of Isaiah, he says two things that I think are very significant. First of all, he says in verse 4 that Isaiah was plain unto all those who are filled with the spirit of prophecy. Read Isaiah and ask the Lord to help you. It becomes plain when the Spirit helps us. The Spirit will give you connections in Isaiah that you just will not get anywhere else. Read it with the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 8, he throws one more idea in. I know that they shall be of great worth, meaning the words of Isaiah, unto them in the last days. For in that day shall they understand them. And I ask, why is it that the Latter-day Saints, the Latter-day Saints would understand Isaiah better than anyone else? And clearly, we can see fulfillment in the prophecies that have already come to pass. But what advantage do we have in the latter days? It seems to me, he's saying, take advantage of modern scriptures, modern prophets, and modern scholarship. Because in the latter days, you will have assets and information that very few people will have. So in the latter days, we'll understand Isaiah. Get on the internet. Do a little searching when something comes up that maybe you don't understand. Use modern scriptures. Look in the Book of Mormon. Look in the Doctrine and Covenants. Find it somewhere else, and it'll help you understand. So those are just some extra helps. Read it with the Holy Ghost. Use modern tools to understand. But brothers and sisters, 
sisters, you'll get a lot out of Isaiah. Don't just rush over it. Don't skip it. Read it slowly, liken it, see it, know somewhat a little bit about the region's roundabout, get the Holy Ghost, spend some time with modern tools, and I think you'll get a lot more out of Isaiah than you realize. So in the 25th chapter, Isaiah is, you know, he's done. And Nephi says, I'm so glad that I've talked about these things, and this is all going to be to Nephi wrapped up in what I've counted like 12 predictions that he makes in this chapter. And I'll post these in the show notes because of time, but essentially it all comes back to God's going to bring him home. But Nephi tells the story of the Jews over thousands of years from his time and into the future and in our time. And his overall prophecy is that things are going to be put back. And that the words that Nephi is writing down, he sees in vision that they're going to come out and that this is going to be made known to people and that people will know Jesus. And so if you go just to the end of 2 Nephi 25, he talks a lot about Christ and why, why he keeps the law. But then he says at the in verse 28, he says, right, right about the second or third line, he says, I've spoken plainly to you that you cannot misunderstand. And the words which I have spoken shall stand as a testimony. A little bit later, he says, for the right way is to believe in Christ and deny him not. And so to Nephi, everything is about Christ. Everything takes us home to Christ. But he uses the story of the the Jewish people and the destruction of the temple and then the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple period, and then the destruction again and the apostasy. And he begs them not to look anymore for a Messiah. And he uses the story of this people to teach about the redemptive Jesus. And that's my testimony is that we all come from somewhere and our seed is going somewhere. Like we're having children, we've, we were children, we came from our parents. And the way I read Nephi is he sees big picture and he sees Jesus with his hands extended and he has great love for all these children and he knows that things are not gonna always go perfect. I mean, that's kind of their story. And it's rife with tragedy, but it's also filled with beauty. And that's my testimony is that the human experience, even though it's messy, it's beautiful. And the Savior, because of who he is, is going to pick us up. And Nephi, you can just feel it in his bones. He's just like, I believe in Jesus, and I believe if we'll just listen to him. I love where he says in the middle of verse 20, he says, none other name under heaven is going to save us. And so that's kind of how I would close Second Nephi 25. And I love at the very end of verse 23, it's after grace that we're saved, after all that we can do. So do as much as you can. I mean, sometimes we err on the, I think I have to do more than I am. Sometimes I have to do more than I think I'm doing. But there's this beautiful balance that says, look, you're going to be saved by grace after all you can do. Jesus is going to come and he's going to pick it up. Now do all that you can do, but trust that the Savior is going to be there in the end and he'll pick it up. Yeah. Okay. So with that, I'm Thanks for listening. If you've if you had endured all the way, uh, brothers and sisters, way to go! Like you've done Isaiah, so you get a gold ribbon uh, or a gold star or a blue ribbon. I don't even know what color, but anyway, thank you for listening. If you feel like this has been helpful to you, uh, share it in your circle of influence. We certainly want to find ways that we can benefit everyone. This stuff matters, and that Jesus is the way back. And so, with that, we thank you, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.